You guys want to start sitting down and blah, blah, blah? Uh, oh, we need to give you a seat. Oh, I'm going to, Brian's going to show us. I'm just going to do a little dinner announcement for you. Okay. Okay, uh, welcome to the uh, final paper this first day. Um, before we get started, and Brian introduces Graham, um, an announcement regarding dinner. As we said before, um, at, so we have a reservation at 6.30 at Duke's Corner, which is basically if you're walking from here, you go up that road to uh, Westport, um, look for the giant metal pyramid kind of on your right. Is that a fair analysis, Dundee people? And kind of past the giant mystical metal pyramid with a Jesus fish on it. No one knows what it means. Um, there's a place called Duke's Corner. Um, and the deal is, we, we, make, we booked the table for all the, uh, the keynotes and the, everyone giving the panel papers, but there should be ample room for everyone else to, to be there. Um, it's reasonably affordable. Sadly, we can't pay for anyone's dinners. Um, so, yeah, but it, it's, it's reasonable. And then even if you want to grab food somewhere else or after, come along and um, have a drink or something, hang out for a bit. If you're a beer drinker, I um, recommend you get a pint of the Zeitgeist Stout. Um, thank me later. Um, but I'm sure people will be walking over. But so 6.30 over there, and especially um, if, if you are one of the speakers, we have a place for you to sit. Um, and along with that, tomorrow night, I don't know who all is going to be around, but the idea has been floating around of doing a sort of informal hangout barbecue session at um, our colleague Reed's house, which has a nice garden. The question is, how many of you, A, will be around tomorrow night, and B, would want to go to this? Uh, show of hands. Okay, that's, I didn't really count, but the, okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> that was good. Um, here, here's what we'll ask then. If you, if you want to do that, um, at some point tomorrow, preferably early on in the day, um, if you'd be willing to make a donation of like three to five pounds for the purchasing of food, um, and then we'll figure out buying food, cooking it, and if you just show up with uh, the adult or children's beverage of your choice, um, and we'll hang out and have a relaxing post-conference session on one of the longest nights in recent memory. Um, time change. Um, so that said, we'll see you all at dinner and um, take it away, Brian. Okay. Yeah, it only remains for me to uh, introduce one of our key speakers. Uh, seeing as we just had two papers, uh, I'm sure you already know Graham Harmon to some extent, but he is the um, Associate Professor at the American University in Cairo. Um, he came to prominence with his innovative work on Heidegger in books such as uh, Tool Being and the development of that in other works such as Guerrilla Metaphysics and the introductory work on Heidegger Explained. Recently, last year, he um, uh, became sort of more interested in the work of Latour, publishing the book uh, The Prince of Networks, which also began to develop his own theory of object-oriented philosophy. Um, and you have some forthcoming books as well, which, mm -hmm. are, which are going to take that uh, idea on further. So I'm sure that's the aspect that most people are, are interested in, which is Graham's own work on object-oriented philosophy. So. Okay. Today I will refer to two kinds of materialism that have grown increasingly popular in our circles. One kind is usually motivated by scientific realism. The other, somewhat paradoxically, draws on German idealist currents. In what follows, I will describe an example of the first kind of materialism in some detail and speak briefly about its similarity with the apparently opposite kind. I will then urge that both be rejected and propose an alternative. The historical reference of my title is well known. Before the destruction of Roman archenemy Carthage in 146 BC, Cato the Elder acquired the habit of ending speeches on just about any topic with the phrase, I am also of the opinion that Carthage 
Carthage must be destroyed, famously shortened in Latin to Cartago de Lenda Est. But my related phrase, materialism must be destroyed, is meant as a provocation for thinking, not as a literal call for eradication. For in the first place, to destroy one's opponents in philosophy is usually not a wise aspiration, even on those rare occasions when it is possible. There is generally a grain of truth in the positions we dislike that cannot be eliminated. Furthermore, the word materialism has been used promiscuously for so many different theories that to destroy it might well mean to destroy every philosophical position that exists. And finally, the project of destruction might also strike the thrower in boomerang fashion. Consider the most recent book of Jane Bennett's, whose views have been described as similar to my own. Bennett uses materialism in a way that could easily apply both to object-oriented philosophy and to the writings of Bruno Latour. As she sees it, materialism is a suitable name for any philosophy that dissolves the opposition between free human subjects and inert material slabs. Naturally, I'm all in favor of this dissolution. I simply doubt that materialism is the best name for it. In one sense, terminology is always somewhat arbitrary, and we should be free to coin and use it as we wish. But as a general rule, it seems best to avoid confusion by building terms on their tradition of use. What links Bennett's position most closely with Latour's and my own is that she opposes reduction as a general philosophical method. Music and governments are not reduced to carbon, oxygen, metal, or some deeper alternative structure. Instead, all human and non-human things of every scale are placed on the same footing. Materialism, by contrast, has generally been reductive, and its victim of choice has been mid-sized everyday objects. One form of materialism tears these objects down to reveal their deeper physical foundations, as if mocking them from below. Another rejects the reality of these objects for precisely the opposite reason, denying any depth beneath the way they are given to us, as if mocking them from above. Given the apparent opposition of these two strategies, it is remarkable that both are often denoted with the term materialism. Although I used to wonder why the second was called materialism at all, I now think there is good reason to accept this dual usage, for the two positions do share much in common. They are beginning to form a strong unspoken alliance, and taken jointly, they are even on the brink of dominating continental philosophy in our time. And as much as, as we may despise that term continental philosophy or pretend to despise it, it describes a real subculture that has not yet found a better name. My central claims today are as follows. First, the two forms of materialism are alike, insofar as both view individual objects as superfluous. Someone might contend that each of these supposed forms is really just a straw man concealing a rich internal diversity of particular types. But this would miss the point, since they are by no means diverse with respect to the problem now under discussion, the status of individual objects. France, depicted as a tiny red hexagon on a globe, also oversimplifies a rich internal diversity, but this does not make France a straw man, at least not as long as we are thinking at the level of the globe. Second, I will claim that the two materialisms are locked in a mutually dependent or even parasitic relationship. The one type begins by asserting a real depth of the world, but ends by saying that this, this depth is commensurate with human knowledge anyway. Otherwise, science could not remain paramount over appeals to inscrutable things in themselves. The other type merely follows the reverse movement. Namely, it begins by asserting that we cannot think anything outside thought without thereby turning it into an object of thought, but ends by asserting a depth that makes it more than knowledge, for otherwise we have lapsed into full-blown idealism. Third, it follows that both kinds of materialism are willing to sacrifice reality on the altar of knowledge. For them, the real is not veiled or hidden, but merely suppressed by some folk or bourgeois ideology that can potentially be removed by committed human efforts. Whatever such a doctrine might be called, I will say that it cannot count as realism. Fourth, it also follows that the two sorts of materialism tend to view mathematics, the sciences, including economics, or both of these combined as having some sort of privileged status for philosophy, with poetry usually serving as the name of choice for all that they reject as non-rigorous. Fifth, the two forms of materialism not only deny that there are autonomous objects deeply hidden beneath human access, even within the sphere of human access, they uphold a theory of bundles of properties and thereby deny the existence of phenomenological objects no less than real ones, though these are precisely the two kinds we ought to endorse. 
Sixth, they tend to have a relational conception of ontology, though this may take on a different look in each form of materialism. Seventh, they assume that the relation to the world of humans, or perhaps both animals and humans, is different in kind from the relations between inanimate things. These days, my sense is that all of these views taken together are key ingredients in the emerging consensus of continental philosophy. The present lecture is designed as a minority report. Against the materialism that has just been sketched, I adhere to the following views. Objects are not the gullible residue of crude common sense. They are, in fact, the sole subject matter of philosophy, of all thought and action, and even of inanimate causation. Reality is genuinely hidden from us and from all relations whatsoever, not because of any tragic limits on the human psyche or scientific instruments or due to the physics of event cones, but simply because of a permanent incommensurability between being and relation that can, in fact, be explained on purely a priori grounds. Objects are not reducible to bundles of properties, whether in the mind or in reality. This notion is simply the most insidious legacy of British empiricism. Mathematics and natural science do not have privileged status for philosophy, and the effort to convert philosophy into one of these disciplines is simply another attempt to turn philosophy into a handmaid, though in service to a flashy or mistress than theology. And finally, the relation of human and world should be treated no differently from any other kind of relation. If materialism is becoming the dominant school of our time, I will urge that we look beyond our time. The vocation of philosophy is to mar- not to march in lockstep with the knowledge of its day, but to hunt for new days that have not yet dawned, in Nietzsche's lovely phrase. The first great upsurge of materialism in the West can be found in pre-Socratic philosophy. Whatever their diversity, the pre-Socratics can easily be divided into two basic groups. The first chooses some specific physical material to be the underlying root of things, whether it be air, water, fire, four elements together, or atoms. But the second views these materials as too specific to serve as the bedrock of the cosmos, and gives us instead a boundless aperon deeper than any physical elements. All are agreed in showing little respect for the famous mid-sized everyday objects, which they wish to reduce to a more primitive basis. Only two of the pre-Socratics deviate slightly on this point. Pythagoras does so by making number the ground of everything, and Anaxagoras by retaining mid-sized objects in minuscule form as the homo amorei, everywhere the world is laced with tiny horses, sharks, and trees. But notice that even these two thinkers hold that there was once a shapeless aperon later destroyed to make way for their new elements of choice. This is the original meaning of materialism. All compound and non-physical things can be reduced to a, a simpler physical basis. It need not be hard red billiard balls. A churning shapeless aperon will do, and there are other alternatives as well. In any case, this form of materialism seeks to eliminate all composite and immaterial beings, unmasking them as the gullible reveries of an unphilosophical populace. It has a long and proud history of debunking numerous superstitions, has often done great service for human enlightenment, and I reject it without mocking it. But yet another form of materialism is with us today, in some respects the opposite of the first. It emerges from the German idealist tradition that it turns upside down, though without escaping it, in my view. I speak, for example, of dialectical materialism, a theory of social relations rather than of tiny components deeper than all relation. Familiar everyday things are not so much illusions as they are vulgar fetishes granted a false independent identity. As Trotsky wrote in 1939, vulgar thought operates with such concepts as capitalism, morals, freedom, workers' state, etc., as fixed abstractions, presuming that capitalism is equal to capitalism, morals is equal to morals, etc. Dialectical thinking analyzes all things and phenomena in their continuous change, while determining in the material conditions of those changes that critical limit beyond which A ceases to be A, a workers' state ceases to be a workers' state. The relations among all things and phenomena and their continuous change are not withdrawn into some dusky, veiled underworld for Trotsky, but are concealed from us only by ideology, which will eventually be eliminated. This type of materialism is more compatible than the first, with Zizek's otherwise surprising statement that the true formula of materialism is not that there is some noumenal reality beyond our distorting perception of it. The only consistent materialist position is that the world does not exist. 
It is found as well in the speculative materialism of Quentin Mayasu, who admits his great debt to Marx. Mayasu's principle of ancestrality has been widely understood, sorry, misunderstood, what a slip, widely misunderstood, even by me at first. Mayasu is not a classical realist any more than our Zizek Badiou. Although none of these authors want to be called idealists, they are realists even less. Despite Mayasu's valuable critique of correlationism, he has stated clearly in print that he thinks correlationism is basically right. We cannot think an unthought X without immediately turning it into an X that is thought. The correlational circle cannot be escaped, but only radicalized from within. This is materialism repackaged as a kind of imminence, with nothing lying beyond its possible accessibility to thought. There is no need for a material stratum deeper than all access, since access itself is the material stratum. The rest is mystification. In what follows, it will be useful to have shorthand names for both of these doctrines. But experience has taught me that to assign an existing name, such as scientific realism or dialectical materialism, merely stirs up distracting controversy. After all, dialectical materialism also claims to be scientific, and many scientific realists are sensitive about being lumped together with positivists. And finally, to attack the replacement of metaphysics by science is often mistaken for an attack on science itself. And the indifference to science during much of the past century of continental thought was too regrettable to deserve even a hint of endorsement. So for today, at least, I will adopt a more neutral and whimsical set of terms and speak instead of ground floor and first floor materialisms. In America, we call these the first and second floors, but Egypt follows the European system of numbering them, and today I will defer to my adopted homeland. The apartment where I live in Cairo is located in a classy older building on Brazil Street in the neighborhood of Zamalek. On the ground floor of the building, one finds a powerful national bank, perhaps the real hidden basis of activity in the neighborhood. Let this bank serve as mascot for the sort of materialism that seeks to eliminate hypocrisy, alchemy, folk concepts, and deities, and trace everything back to its real underpinnings. Meanwhile, the first floor of this building houses no businesses, but only people, myself included. Each residence is equipped with a stunning terrace that overlooks the streets and provides a clear view of everything that happens there. And yet, the most fascinating part of the building is neither the ground floor nor the first floor. Conveniently enough for this allegory, there is also a partly concealed mezzanine level. This cryptic intermediate zone is is home to perhaps the finest art dealer in the city, the Zamalek Art Gallery. A humble sign in the entryway alerts the public that the gallery exists, but otherwise there is little to announce its presence beyond fame and rumor. By the terms of this analogy, materialism can be described as a philosophy that either goes to the bank, sits on a scenic terrace and gazes at the world, or perhaps does both on the same visit. What it misses in each case is the concealed art gallery lying directly between those two activities. But take note, I am not saying that objects are hermaphrodites transgressing the boundary between a pure physical world on one side and a pure subjective sphere on the other. This cannot be maintained after reading even 30 or 40 pages of Latour. Instead, my position is that both the bank and the terrace are art galleries as well, with 10,000 others stretching to the ninth floor and above and infinite galleries burrowing deep into the earth. There is no ground floor, no first floor, and hence no unification of the two. It's galleries all the way down. In recent writings, I have made a number of challenges to first-floor materialism. These can be found in the long final chapter of Prince of Networks, and my closing statement on the matter will be written this summer in a forthcoming book on Mayasu to be published just down the road from here in Edinburgh. At times, I have also written on ground-floor materialism, but it might be claimed that my attacks on the undermining of objects have been more effective against the pre-Socratic and more recent physicalist forms of materialism than against the more sophisticated positions available today. For this reason, I will speak today about ground-floor materialism in connection with James Ladyman and Don Ross, whose remarkably acerbic book, Everything Must Go, appeared with Oxford University Press in 2007. It is true that the authors are mildly indifferent to the term materialism. Furthermore, they openly deny that there is any ground-floor of the world, no final level. Nonetheless, they still meet the prime criterion for ground-floor materialism insofar as they undercut the everyday world of familiar objects with what they call structure. 
They are materialists through their dismissive attitude toward individual objects, and they live on the ground floor for the simple reason that they undermine objects rather than overmining them. That is to say, they obviously do not make the correlationist argument that everything is trapped in the circle of thoughts, since their whole point is to claim that knowledge does make contact with the real, even as scientific theories change. To deny this would be to defeat the whole purpose of a science-based metaphysics. Structural realism, the current to which they belong, was launched precisely in order to account for how contact with the real and the science can be preserved despite changes in scientific theory over time. Even if many past objects of scientific knowledge have vanished under the onslaught of scientific progress, a certain amount of mathematical structure is said to be preserved. The book Everything Must Go is worth considering for several reasons. First, Ladyman and Ross seem to have written as vehement a work of anti-object-oriented philosophy as could possibly be imagined, while also endorsing many claims that have a familiar ring for readers of object-oriented thoughts. This gives the book an interesting flavor of paradox. At first, they seem to aggressively dismiss both objects and the related topic of causation as primary philosophical themes. Nonetheless, they also claim to replace sterile desert landscapes with a rainforest, that's their term, of what they call real patterns, descending endlessly without limits. They also tacitly oppose the correlationist argument in the name of realism, just as I do explicitly. A second reason for choosing this book is that despite its 300-page length and its vast supply of footnotes and technical terms, everything must go, proposes a relatively simple metaphysical position. A longer treatment of the book would be worthwhile, but it is still possible to give an accurate description of its contents almost as briefly as one describes the shape and position of France on a globe. Third and finally, Ladyman has recently joined Metzinger, Churchland, Sellers, Laruelle, sometimes Badiou, on the list of heroes of the scientific nihilist wing of speculative realism, just as Latour, Zabiri, Whitehead, McLuhan, and sometimes Lingus are the frequent heroes of the object-oriented splinter of the movement. We admire science, say Ladyman and Ross, to the point of frank scientism. In this way, they adopt scientism in the same manner as other insulted groups once used impressionist, fauvist, or queer, former terms of abuse now embraced by their targets as proud slogans. Their scientism leads them to make unusually harsh remarks about some of their rivals, which they justify by saying that they care too much about philosophy to speak anything less than the painful truth. Specifically, they hold that analytic metaphysics fails to qualify as part of the enlightened pursuit of objective truth and should be discontinued. (laughs) And they mock it throughout the book as neo-scholasticism. It may be safely assumed that they also do not view continental metaphysics as part of the enlightened pursuit of objective truth. This still tiny subfield is probably not even on their radar. I doubt they know this event is occurring today. <laughs> Ladyman and Ross do describe their own work as metaphysics, but they seem prepared to denounce any armchair metaphysics not based on or inspired by the natural sciences. In one of several pragmatist twists in the book, reminiscent of Latour himself, they even hold that the standards of best current scientific knowledge are determined by institutions, down to and including grant proposal committees. No scientist, they say, has any reason to be interested in most of the conversation that now goes on under the rubric of metaphysics. They denounce esoteric debates about substance, universals, identity, time, properties, and so on, which make little or no reference to science, and worse, which seem to presuppose that science must be irrelevant to their resolution, for these are based on prioritizing armchair intuitions about the nature of the universe over scientific discoveries. Such armchair intuitions are rejected for reasons already familiar to readers of Sellers and Churchland, namely, what people find intuitive is not innate, but is rather a developmental and educational achievement. We should expect developmental and cultural variation in what is taken to be intuitive, and this is just what we find, they say, with the example given that Americans tend to blame crimes on people and Chinese on circumstance. In their view, science outstrips intuition. No one's intuitions in advance of the relevant science told them that white light would turn out to have compound structure, that combustion primarily involves something being taken up rather than given off, that birds are the only living descendants of dinosaurs, or that Australia is presently on its way to a collision with Alaska. For this reason, science trumps armchair metaphysics. As they say, special relativity ought to dictate the metaphysics of time, quantum physics the metaphysics of substance, and chemistry and evolutionary biology the metaphysics of natural kinds. 
their scientism is frank indeed. But the scientists are not a democracy. There is a queen in their kingdom. One of the pillars of the book is what the authors call the PPC, or the primacy of physics constraint. They formulate this principle as follows. Special science hypotheses that conflict with fundamental physics should be rejected for that reason alone. Fundamental physical hypotheses are not symmetrically hostages to the conclusions of the special sciences. But while endorsing naturalism, they reject the physicalism that views the world by way of a physics of objects, collisions, and forces, which they sometimes ridicule as the philosophy of A-level chemistry. It's a funny term, I admit. They even give names, finding this primitive science in such prominent neo-scholastic figures as Jaguan Kim and David Lewis. Ladyman and Ross view the task of metaphysics as the unification of physics with the special sciences. They say we should surely have our metaphysics informed by our best physics, though the phrase informed by is actually a euphemism for utterly dominated by, in their view. And since forces, things, and essences find no representations in mathematical physical theory, we can say that they do not exist. The authors have no sympathy for the metaphysics of individual entities. They say naturalists should not believe in material objects. These are not what physics or any other science studies. They are pure philosophical inventions. The wish for an ontology of individuals amounts, they say, to the demand that the mind-independent world be imaginable in terms of the categories of the world of experience. Objects are merely pragmatic devices used to orient oneself in the worlds. As they put it, there are no things. Structure is all that there is. Objects belong to the world of the manifest image. They are the product of human psychology and of the parochial demands on our cognition during our evolution, as well as, they add bitingly, an education in the classical texts of the metaphysical tradition. Reality is simply not a sum of concrete particulars. After dismissing objects and causation as folk products, they are biting once again with their mock concession that folk metaphysics generally makes for better poetry than scientific metaphysics. Hence, Ladyman and Ross would seem to be the anti-object-oriented thinkers par excellence. This impression is initially heightened when they gear up to attack the theory of emergent levels of the worlds. Knowing the author's scientism and their celebration of physics as empress of the cosmos, the reader might well assume that they view all large and medium-scale entities as illusory byproducts of a micro-layer of reality. But somewhat surprisingly, this is not what happens in the book. Unlike many whose temperament and worldview they share, Ladyman and Ross support the idea that emergent properties are unexplainable, unpredictable, and irreducible based on what came before. Whereas many critics of emergentism are annoyed that it gives mid-sized entities too much autonomy from their component pieces, these authors find too little. With admirable strangeness, they simply do not think that gold atoms, gold molecules, chunks of gold, and display cases filled with gold jewelry have any sort of causal or compositional relationship at all. The reasons for this will be clarified as we proceed, but the point is that instead of denying that an individual is something over and above its components, they deny that individuals are discrete units engaged in causal layering at all. If they dislike the theory of levels of the world, this is not for the usual reason that their world has only one level, but rather because their levels have no mutual influence. To say otherwise in their view would merely amount to a folk poetry of cohesive individual things engaged in causal relations. And with this we begin to see what unusual metaphysics is served up by Ladyman and Ross, so different from other variations on scientism. First, although physics is said to have asymmetrical priority over the special sciences, these sciences are granted independence nonetheless. There are geological and chemical facts about reality, and according to the authors, there are even facts about traffic jams. Despite their complaints about poetry, they indulge at one point in their very own quasi-poetic Latour litany, which is Ian Bogos' blogosphere term for the long list of concrete things favored by object-oriented philosophers. Just listen to this list. The sciences do not lead a whole parade of special science objects into metaphysical purgatory. Prices, neurons, peptides, gold, and Napoleon are all real patterns, existing in the same sense as quarks, bosons, and the weak force. This passage might easily have come from one of my own books. The authors even boast that they allow for a rainforest of realities, a breath of fresh air in comparison with the usual appeals to Occam's razor and Quine's desert landscapes. The world is swarming with real patterns, some undiscovered and some of them literally impossible to uncover. 
It follows that an, an infinity of still unknown sciences lies in our future, each of them dedicated to types of patterns not yet known. And this is perhaps the most surprising aspect of their book. At first, their scientific program and generally abrasive tone makes Ladyman and Ross look like aggressive, annihilating bullies of the stereotypical sorts, roaming the streets in their leather structuralist realist jackets on a Friday night, roughing up poets and neo-scholastic with brass knuckles and switchblades. <laughs> but now their rainforest approach, their world filled with non-interlocking and scale-dependent objects of the special sciences, makes them look as inflationary as an all-you-can-eat buffet sponsored by Latour and Meinong. <laughs> this latter point is just a playful exaggeration, of course, since much is still eliminated in their model. But the point is that their jungle of patterns, each cut off from genuine causal or meteorological links with its neighbors, sounds almost like the occasionalist dream of a pluralist landscape of independent realities in need of a deeper force to link them. But there are at least three key differences between ontic structural realism and object-oriented philosophy, and these differences show why Ladyman and Ross are materialists, and I am not. The first is that they are very strict about distinguishing real patterns from mere folk patterns that can be eliminated by the usual procedures of scientism, and for them, unsurprisingly, this includes sensory qualia. The second difference is their denial of any genuine composition or causation in the worlds. The third difference is that their ultimate reality is structure, which has nothing at all to do with individual things, but so closely resembles a unified Kantian noumenon that they are forced to spend several paragraphs denying it. Let's take a brief look at this strangely imaginative brand of rainforest scientism. If the physics of the past featured genuine tiny objects such as chemicals and atoms, Ladyman and Ross are concerned only with the most up-to-date quantum theory. And here they find no objects and no causation of any traditional sorts. Let's not argue with this claim, which on page 191 they rightly admit to be controversial. Let's focus instead on their concession that the special sciences, and this includes all sciences other than physics, do deal with such things. The following worry now arises, they concede. It is easier to give up on self-subsistent individuals in physics than it is in the special sciences, because the latter, but not the former, express many or most crucial generalizations in terms of transmission of causal influence from one relatively encapsulated system to another. Instead of being made up of objects and causes, they say that reality is structure. But they also say that to be is to be a real pattern. Or elsewhere, the tentative metaphysical hypothesis of this book is that the real patterns, real patterns criterion of reality, they take the term from Dennett, is the last word in ontology, and there is nothing more to the existence of a structure than what it takes for it to be a real pattern. To call this hypothesis tentative is a bit misleading, since they push it aggressively as the very centerpiece of the book. It is tentative only in the sense that they claim it is open to empirical falsification, though it is difficult to see what experimental test could possibly pull off such a feat. References made to Conway's famous game of life, in which black squares on a grid follow simple rules of generation and decay. As is well known, these very simple rules often generate elaborate patterns that have an enduring reality over and above their component squares. So-called gliders move across the screen, and there is even an elaborate glider gun pattern that shoots out new gliders repeatedly. Ladyman and Ross defend the reality of the large-scale patterns and invoke Dennett to argue that the scale-level description of these shapes is more efficient than the bitmap description and without being compressible into a still simpler description. This, for them, is enough to make gliders, eaters, and shooters real patterns. They also accuse conservative metaphysicians of denying reality to anything other than the individual squares in the game, although mainstream materialism is just as guilty of this, which they don't say. Shifting to more serious domains, they also claim that the genius of Darwin in biology and Lyell in geology lay in recognizing scale ascendance in their respective domains, patterns not really present in the smaller elements of a situation. Each layer of the world in these disciplines does have a certain autonomy. For example, natural selection and evolution is invisible at the level of individuals, but becomes easily visible at the level of populations. Nor can the mountain ranges and fault lines of geology be found in the individual pebbles of which they are composed. But as already stated, Ladyman and Ross want to increase this autonomy exponentially to the point that patterns are not causally composed of smaller patterns at all. 
They even claim that emergence in the compositional sense violates the second law of thermodynamics, a claim best left for another occasion. But if to be is to be a real pattern, then we should ask what a real pattern is and how it differs from those supposed gullible fictions known as objects. The first thing to note is that despite the adjective real, these real patterns can be viewed largely in pragmatic terms. And incidentally, Ladyman and Ross often express their admiration for pragmatism in the book. This is not your father's hardcore scientism. To take an example, Napoleon is not an individual for these authors. He is a real pattern. As they put it, observers tracking him in 1801 could get lots of highly useful leverage projecting the pattern forward to 1805. So sure enough, Napoleon is a real pattern. But providing useful leverage for observers edges toward becoming a key criterion of reality itself in this book. By contrast, and the example is theirs, not mine, the object named by my left nostril and the capital of Namibia and Miles Davis's last trumpet solo is not a real pattern because identification of it supports no generalizations not supported by identification of the three conjuncts considered separately. The authors assure us that no observer ever has access to the complete extent of a real pattern, and they hold that this is what forces us to be pragmatic about real patterns. The reason we never have such access for Ladyman and Ross is not due to some sort of Heideggerian withdrawal into cryptic veiled reality, but rather because a certain amount of information must always be inaccessible to observers. The exact number of the hairs of Napoleon's head at Waterloo is now irrecoverable information, and so are those events so distant in the universe that no human will ever be able to observe them. Thus deprived of the total reality of things, we must pragmatically focus on core properties that allow us to very reliably predict that our attention is still tracking the same real pattern through any given operation of observation and reasoning. We make do with individuals which for them are only epistemological bookkeeping devices, that's a quote, and this is said to be true of animals, no less than humans. If individual things are constructs built for second-order tracking of real patterns, they are not necessarily linguistic constructions, since some non-human animals almost certainly cognitively construct them. However, they adds, all questions about the relationship between real patterns and the individuals that feature in special sciences concern individuals constructed by people. But as for real patterns, there are real patterns all the way down, they say. To repeat, everything that exists is a real pattern, but there are two kinds of them. Representational real patterns and extra-representational extra real patterns. The latter are those which are not second order with respect to any other real pattern. And as the authors put it, the overwhelming majority of real patterns that people talk directly about are representational. Restated in Kantian terminology, quote, this is the not very exciting idea but true point at the heart of the exciting but false idea that people think only about phenomena while what really exists are noumena, unquote. For as they put it, People can think and communicate about extra-representational real patterns, but don't usually try to. Scientists often try and succeed in so thinking and communicating. The real can be known, but through formalization rather than natural language. When discussing the famous example of Eddington's two tables, the table encountered practically in the material table of physics, their view is that the scientific table is the one that doesn't exist. And they are proud of how their metaphysics is able to handle this specific case. They say it is an advantage of our view that it makes it possible to understand how both the scientific image and the common sense image can capture real patterns. The everyday table is probably a real pattern. Strictly speaking, there is no scientific table at all because there is no single candidate aggregate of real microscopic patterns that is best suited to be the reductive base of the everyday table. Moreover, we deny that everyday or special science real patterns must be myriological compositions of physical real patterns. And finally, the only difference between physics and the special sciences is that fundamental physics discovers something of a kind that special sciences don't, and we call this kind of something a universal real pattern, which applies to all, pa all other patterns. Too much exposition easily becomes dull, but before putting an end to the current dose of it, we also need to touch on the thoroughly relational character of this new scientism. For after defending the role of institutions in establishing scientific truth and speaking in praise of networks, Ladyman and Ross have a third Latourian moment by identifying their metaphysics as a form of relationism. 
Real patterns not only do not exist as autonomous causal agents, they do not exist independently of their context at all. This theme recurs throughout their book. The authors approvingly cite Moro Dorato as saying that entities postulated by physical theories are to be regarded as a web of relations, not presupposing substance-like entities or hangers in which they inhere, as well as Kassira's words, as Leibniz spins in his grave while hearing this, that they are a definite aggregate of relations and consist in this aggregate. It's relations all the way down. Classical metaphysics believes in the principle of the identity of indiscernibles and treats every pound sterling as unique, but mathematics and quantum theory do not, insofar as the relational properties of both pounds are the same. And it is these disciplines we must follow, rather than neo-scholastic metaphysics, for them. Most vividly of all, Ladyman and Ross call it beguiling nonsense for a naturalist to think that things can be transported to radically new environments in space and time and remain the same thing, since nothing in contemporary science motivates the picture. And here they have both Latour and Whitehead on their side, whether they like it or not. They try to close the deal with the following thought experiment. Take giant pandas to Saturn, or 6,000 million years ago backwards in their light cone. It's easy to think about, isn't it? But organisms are unusually strongly cohesive real patterns, unlike many real patterns studied by scientists. Now imagine taking the market and airlines risk derivatives to Saturn, or 6,000 million years ago back ago in its light cone. That was a bit harder even to imagine, wasn't it? And finally, it should be added that the authors have little use for causation, though they agree that the special sciences cannot do without causation as a heuristic device for discovering real patterns. On the one hand, they call it a folk idea that has caused no end of confusion in metaphysics. They ridicule causation with the nickname of microbangings, and take the following position instead. Because we think fundamental physics describes real patterns, we believe there are universal laws. We do not believe they are about causal factors. For them, it is wrong to believe in microbangings for the simple reason that even if the analytic metaphysics of 2007 believes in them, the physics of 2007 does not. The question is for fundamental physics to settle, and it now speaks against them. But despite all this, they oppose Russell's attempt to eliminate causation from the sciences altogether. For as they put it, though physics doesn't require the metaphysician to work causation into the structural fabric, it is harder to avoid this while maintaining a realist attitude toward the special sciences. Generally, they prefer to replace the word causal with the phrase information carrying, though this separate issue must be left for another time. In conclusion, that's a fairly long conclusion. <laughs> the surprising materialism proposed by Ladyman and Ross is one that they happily describe as turtles all the way down, though with the unusual twist that the turtles are not standing on one another's backs. Indeed, they're not connected at all. The turtles are all separate. It's an occasionalist theory. Different turtles, different real patterns, are simply found at different scales without being caused by or composed of others. But there is an obvious tension between the pragmatic scale dependence of these patterns and the claim that they are real. In fact, they are real only in the minimalist sense that they are not mere patterns of the intentional realm that can be eliminated through being compressed into a more efficient description, as with sensory qualia. If we stumble into the real pattern known as a table, it blocks our progress and hurts us, which proves for them its mind independence. Let's ignore for now that the ambiguous state of causation in the book should make it difficult for the table to do any such thing, and ask instead why there are supposed to be real patterns in the plural. If the world is structure... And if structure is a relational whole, broken into discrete patterns only at the specific scales occupied by human or animal observers, then there are problems with how patterns can exist in the plural at all, and with the related question of why there are different scales in the first place. If I and my friends and a pack of dogs witness the world at different scales, and if even these scales vary at different times, this means that there are discrete observers and perspectives in the world. And if there are discrete realities of this sort, then there are already individuals, whether or not they are the enduring things of traditional substance theory. There are two options here, and both of them face insuperable difficulties. The first option is that structure in its own right is already broken up into diverse patterns and scales. But in this case, it would have to be individual, or at least pre-individual zones. And there would no, be no reason for them not to use the term things, for the various humans, monkeys, and zebras observing patterns at various scales, as long as our definition of thing is broad enough. 
The second option is that structure itself does not have discrete zones, such that specific patterns first emerge only in pairs with the observers who confront them. This carries the obvious difficulty that the observers themselves would also have to surge forth from an incompletely differentiated structure. But even if we think there is no difficulty with a real pattern and its observer emerging simultaneously, it is unclear why a global relational structure would ever generate discrete scales of observers and observed. Such a position resembles that of Anaxagoras, in which mind splits the aperon into pieces via rapid rotation, or more recently, in Levinas and Nancy, in which an undifferentiated whole is magically split into parts via thoughts or relations, even as it is held to be the ground of these thoughts and relations. But I have criticized these views repeatedly elsewhere and will not repeat the exercise today. Yet there is an even more basic problem with this model of the world, which is that Ladyman and Ross never fully clarify the relation between pattern, structure, and mathematics that lies at the very heart of their metaphysics. Recall that they insist on real patterns, real turtles all the way down, but they also say there is structure all the way down, and this leads to one of several surprisingly tough questions aimed at Ladyman in his 2009 Collapse interview. Namely, what exactly is it which your philosophy affirms to be ontologically fundamental when it insists that structure is all that there is? Is it mathematical structure itself, or is it those extra-representational real patterns which mathematical structures are taken to represent? Ladyman's response shows refreshing candor. This question gets to the heart of the matter, and I must confess that I am not sure what the answer to it is. The reason for this uncertain response is not that he accidentally froze up with anxiety during the interview. For in fact, he and Ross were already equally candid on page 158 of their book. There they say that physical structure is in fact physical and not just mathematical. But what makes it physical rather than mathematical? Their reply, and this is a quote, that is a question we refuse to answer. (laughs) A strange response coming from such hardcore rationalists. But at least they attempt a justification for their remarkable answer. The world structure just is, and exists independently of us, and we represent it mathematical physically by our theories. In passing, they bluntly concede that this sounds Kantian, for it now sounds as if structure were nothing, nothing more than a noumenal physical realm that can never be approached, although they are absolutely sure, as Kant was not, that it contains no individuals, for they are convinced in advance that individuals are merely the folk product of the manifest image. They see no more reason to be agnostic about the possible existence of objects than about, in their example, not mine, two-headed gerbils who sing the blues. But obviously they cannot endorse such a Kantian model of a noble noumena. This would defeat the very purpose of structural realism, whose entire reason for being is to assert that even obsolete scientific theories had some sort of mathematical contact with the real that survives the downfall of these theories. During four paragraphs of damage control late in the book, they ask, since we can only represent the real patterns in question in terms of mathematical relationships, in what sense are the patterns real other than that in which, according to Kant, noumena are real? They then assert as follows. Our differences from Kant are profound, Unlike Kant, we insist that science can discover fundamental structures of reality that are in no no way constructions of our own cognitive dispositions. And here we find the deadlock not just of one book by Ladyman and Ross, but in my opinion of materialism as a whole. They are simply more candid than other materialists in revealing it. Namely, there is an irresolvable tension between realism and verificationism, two principles that the authors want to embrace simultaneously. In fact, they're quite proud of having combined them in what they see as original fashion. As they say in the closing paragraph of the book, We thus conclude that what we defend in this book, having assumed naturalism, are verificationism and realism. Since these two things have generally been thought to be incompatible, it is no wonder that a significant logical space in the metaphysics of science has gone unexplored and some conundra have seen insurmountable. But far from being new, I would suggest that the attempt to combine the real, as in realism, with an accessibility to the real, as in verificationism, in one and the same philosophy, is the key feature of all materialisms. At the outset, Ladyman and Ross want a real that is physical rather than mathematical, though they refuse to say what this difference would mean or confess that they are not sure. When it is observed that this sounds like nothing more than an inaccessible Kantian noumenon, they change tack and say no because our knowledge is of reality itself, not just of structures imposed by the human mind. 
For despite being verificationists, they insist that they are not positivists, since there is, in fact, a real world for them outside our representation of it. But we have seen that this never attains anything more than a rather weak sense of realism. In the end, it becomes impossible to determine whether Ladyman and Ross are ground floor or first floor materialists. From one side, they look more like neo-fichtians or first floor than Kantian or ground floor when they edge toward the notion that the real is what can be mathematized, with the unpersuasive caveat that some information is irretrievably disconnected from us, such as the number of Napoleon's hairs or the interior of black holes. But from another angle, when they shy away from the consequences of this mathematization of the universe and its markedly anti-realist tone, they veer toward Kant and posit a physical structure beneath the mathematical one, all while refusing, and not just forgetting, but actually refusing, even to say what the difference is. It would be as if I were to say, I, w- I refuse to say what the difference is between real and sensual objects. There just is a difference. Thus, the world of Ladyman and Ross is made up of two zones that mutually implode into one another. The first is the luminous mathematical district of the known and knowable. Such knowledge may never be final in their view, but it does always have some significant contact with the real, thanks to its mathematical core, which endures into next-generation scientific theories. But this cannot be the whole story, or we would have a purely mathematized universe, which he seems to shy away from in the Collapse interview. And that is why a non-mathematical real is posited to add bulk and gravitas to what would otherwise be unmitigated idealism. In short, this universe offers only two basic ingredients, a real physical structure and human or animal observers who stand at a specific scale and thereby encounter mathematical structure in the form of representational real patterns. There can be no question of inanimate things lying outside this human world or animal world pair because such things are supposedly just epistemological bookkeeping devices for those who encounter them. Everything boils down to a correlation between physical structure in itself and mathematical structure for humans, even though the mathematical is granted partial contact with the physical. In short, this purportedly realist philosophy of science quickly reverses into a form of correlationism, a term that we usually do not associate with scientific naturalism, to say the least. Suddenly, it should no longer be a surprise, as it once used to surprise me, that many philosophies of directly correlationist lineage also call themselves materialist, with Zizek, Badiou, and Meassou all being outstanding examples. In a sense, these three figures are not strictly correlationist in Meassou's sense, given that correlationism, as he describes it, is a skeptical agnostic position marked by finitude, whereas Zizek, Badiou, and Meassou all belong to a landscape after finitude, motivated by the spirit of the absolute. Nonetheless, all are correlationists in the wider sense explained by Meassou himself, for in fact he finds it quite compelling, Meassou, that to think something outside of the circle of thought thereby turns it directly into a thought. Hence, we cannot escape the correlational circle of thought and worlds. Philosophy must proceed as an inside job with no reference to inanimate relations. Now, Ladyman and Ross are sufficiently proud realists that they will never accept the correlationist argument. And yet, their metaphysics turns out to be indistinguishable in practice from the view that to think an unthought X is to turn it into an object of thought, and which always tries to avoid charges of idealism by appealing to some excess beyond what is currently formalized, trauma, inconsistency, virtuality. Their own version of this excess is, of course, the physical beyond mathematics, but they will not tell us what it is. But as for correlationism, I leave it to another occasion to say more about how first-floor materialism also implodes into the ground floor. My task this evening was to show the converse movement. Both positions combine a lucid human sphere with a largely formless physical remainder as their supposed realist components, while skipping the level of individual objects altogether. They jump from one level to the other, ignoring everything in between. As for Ladyman and Ross, how could authors as bright, as apparently bright as they are be led to such an impasse in which they either refuse to say or confess their ignorance as to what the central distinction in their philosophy means, and in which real patterns of different scale magically appear to specific people and animals who were granted no room to exist in the first place? The answer is obvious. It is their specific brand of scientism that leads them to this juncture. The more general point of their scientism is that metaphysics should be based on, or at least inspired by, science, and limit itself to attempts to unify the various branches of science at any given time. Their more specific point is that quantum theory does not allow for individual things, and hence metaphysics must not allow them either. This latter point is easily outflanked by noting 
that this is by no means the universal interpretation of quantum theory. And if experimental results have not yet proven this metaphysics, its dubious consequences certainly might. But as concerns the more general point, why exactly is it the mission of philosophy to limp along after the science of its time? Why? It is not clear why philosophers should prematurely unify their own speculations on space, time, and substance with those of the quantum theory and relativity that are not yet even unified with each other. In fact, there is little evidence that the scientists even want us to limp along after them. Einstein profited much from his studies of Kant, as did Bohr from Kierkegaard. Relativity was proposed by Leibniz from an armchair, not a laboratory. A related moment from the collapse interview comes when Leidemann is asked about physicist Carlo Rovelli's statement that, if a new synthesis is to be reached, I believe that philosophical thinking will be once more one of its ingredients. As a physicist involved in this effort, I wish that philosophers who are interested in the scientific conceptions of the world would not confine themselves to commenting on and polishing the present fragmentary theories, but would take the risk of trying to look ahead. Leidemann fires back with the weakest answer in an otherwise lucid interview. He says that some philosophers have the capacity to work at the cutting edge of physics or theoretical biology and have done so and, of course, should continue to do so. But this simply dodges the point. Ravelli was not asking us to work at the cutting edge of these sciences, but to work beyond the cutting edge of these sciences. Yet Ladyman cannot even conceive of this possibility since he assumes from the start that metaphysics operating independently of present-day science is merely armchair philosophy. Let's not forget that the word armchair is no argument in itself. It is a clever verbal weapon, but really no better than if I were to refer to the Lady Ross position as Bunsen burner realism. <laughs> Their claim that philosophical intuitions are invalid, since what is intuitive changes historically and geographically is a red herring, and relies on the ambiguous meaning of a priori as both prior to experience and necessary. For instance, the fact that Heidegger's tool analysis may not seem intuitively plausible to the great Chinese philosophers of 2750 AD by no means entails that Suhananheit must be subjected to empirical tests today. There is plenty of a priori work to be done in philosophy and plenty of rigor to be found in the war of competing a priori intuitions. The problem with the author's philosophy stems less from any failure to unify the scientific facts of the present day than from its insufficiently imaginative a priori deliberations. And here I have a specific a priori reflection to offer, one that was neither conceived of nor written in an armchair. We have seen that Ladyman and Ross are not sure whether extra-representational real patterns are made of the same mathematical stuff as knowledge or whether they exist in some other non-mathematical physical fashion whose difference from the mathematical they are unable to specify. Yet in either case, they are sure that real patterns are not individuals, but rather are part of a relational or contextual structure. For them, nothing makes sense when taken out of a context, certainly not airlines risk derivatives markets, but finally not even pandas, to use their examples. A pattern for these authors is a bundle of relations, no less than a bundle of qualities. The expected objection that there can be no relations without relata is quickly dismissed by them as an old-fashioned gimmick in the eye-rolling spirit of here we go again. And yet the authors must tacitly concede that our knowledge of specific subject matter is never exhaustive at any given moment. Science changes and advances. This difference between representational and extra-representational real patterns is, of course, the key to their whole philosophical position, since it is the only thing that allows them to maintain realism against an idealism that would hold that whatever we think at any given moment is always true. Our knowledge of the planet Neptune is surely incomplete, and they would surely admit it. And hence, our current mathematization of that planet is at best a translation of the real pattern Neptune itself, even if certain mathematical aspects of our current translation will survive into any future understanding of the planet. In short, the real pattern Neptune is nothing more than our or anyone else's relation to it. This means that a distinction between relation and relata is already accepted by them at this level. But once representation is taken out of the picture and we move to the realm beyond representation, we supposedly find in their eyes that Neptune belongs to a giant relational structure rather than being a discrete individual. In other words, although Neptune is not allowed to be dissolved into observers' relations with it in order to preserve scientific realism, Neptune itself is, is supposedly dissolved into the relational structure of the world, having no status as an individual except when viewed by an observer from a specific scale. 
Representation is granted the almost magical power to create distortions by making things falsely discreet. This reawakens the mystery of how a continuum of relational structure without individual zones would differ from a monism of whole without parts. There's the further mystery of why such structure would fragment into specific parts for an observing entity anyway, and the related riddle of why such an observer would be distinct enough from the rest of the structure to have a specific standpoint to begin with. Moreover, the clearest example offered by Ladyman and Ross in defense of relationism does not do the work it is supposed to do. I refer to their claim that the market for airlines' risk derivatives cannot even be imagined as situated six billion years ago earlier in its light cone, so dependent is this market on its relational context. But this claim, I hold, is based on a typically ambiguous use of the word relations, one that is often found in arguments of this type. After all, to move this market six billion years back in time would amount to moving it to a place where the Earth itself does not exist, much less airlines, the insurance industry, or a populace willing to invest in exotic financial markets. No one would claim that the derivatives market could exist under those conditions. But neither would anyone claim that the panda could be moved back six billion years ago if its body parts were left behind in the present. But if we try a less radical experiment and simply imagine the panda and the derivatives market on a day-to-day basis in our own time, we can see that their context is constantly shifting without the panda or the market thereby being destroyed. New investors appear and purchases, uh, sorry, new investors appear and purchase and discard shares in the markets. The supply of bamboo waxes and wanes. Governments rise and fall. The weather changes. Hairs fall from the head of Wellington's heirs. Babies are born and elderly sages perish. All these occurrences are, of course, part of the context of both the panda and the derivatives markets, yet it would be purely arbitrary to say that each of these changes automatically alters the panda and the markets. Assuming that the market is as real as the panda, as the Lady Ross rainforest certainly allows, it must be robust enough to endure at least a limited number of external shocks, or it would not differ from anything else in the first place. These occurrences might be called the foreign relations of the markets, and they are, it is clearly independent of most of these relations, even if a small number of them are able to change or destroy it. But these must be distinguished from what I would call the constituent domestic relations of the markets, which instantly vanish when we move a thing to a situation where its own pieces are stipulated not to exist. It is not a valid objection, in other words, to say that Heidegger's ready-to-hand hammer cannot be non-relational, given that the hammer itself is pieced together from various relations. For there is an asymmetry between these two kinds of relations, between the, the relations a thing needs in order to arise and those relations it has with the outer worlds. And the thing exists precisely, the thing exists precisely in between those two kinds of relations. Whatever I am as an object, I am more dependent on my brain and kidneys than on Dundee or the Obama administration, barring adoption of a gratuitously extreme relationist metaphysics. But the wider philosophical point is this. There is not just the difference between Neptune and our current scientific knowledge of Neptune. There is also an absolute difference between Neptune and its context. Uranus and Pluto do not drink Neptune to the bottom of the glass any more than we do. There are two key problems with materialism as described in this lecture. First, it allows for no genuine plurality in its model of the real. And second, its concept of reality is insufficiently deep. Let's take these points briefly in order to close. Perhaps I can persuade everyone in the room that the ancient Greek operon model of the real is hopelessly abstract. If the world itself were really just a monolithic lump, it is impossible to see why there would be myriad separate appearances for an observer, especially since that same observer should have been melted into the lump along with the rest of the cosmos. And this is precisely why no one openly embraces the Aperon as a model of the real anymore, with the possible exception of brave young Levinas and de l'existence à l'existence. Instead, we meet with more sophisticated models of a real world without full-blown individuals. These models invariably try to have it both ways, blending the continuous with the discrete by initial fiat alone. Consider Simondon's pre-individual, which displays both aspects at once, or Delanda's references to a heterogeneous yet continuous realm. Consider, too, the structure of Ladyman and Ross, which is a total relational context, but one that is also supposedly gifted with a multitude of real patterns that have extra mental existence. But this strife between the continuous and the discrete cannot be resolved simply by positing a magical underground kingdom where cake is both eaten and preserved. 
It is a genuine paradox, as seen from the tortuous labors of Aristotle's physics, on up to today's quest for the elusive quantum gravity. The underworld is either pluralistic and made of chunks, or it is a continuum. Any philosophy must account for both of these aspects of the world in some way, but not by programming both into the game in advance as a sort of cheat codes. We must build up to a resolution of this problem, not adopt the affectation of claiming that the puzzle of continuous and discrete is an easily dismissed pseudo-problem. And since... And since all will agree that the idea of a monolithic world lump magically reversing into a plurality of appearances is incoherent, this leaves us only with the option that the world in itself is many. Contra Ladyman and Ross, it swarms with individuals. And since it would be strange to hold that these individuals meet up only in our minds, we need to reopen the theme of causation between inanimate things as a key philosophical co- topic for our time. Objects are not a gullible fetish resulting from a sad obsession with the manifest image. Instead, they are needed in philosophy given the futility and inaccuracy of all other options. My second major complaint about materialism is that its sense of the real is insufficiently deep. By me may commensurate in principle with knowledge, the real survives merely as a phantom, an alibi of a principle that knows how to speak only one line. I am not an idealist. It's the table, or as Latour says, we are here, what you eat is not dust. It's the table on which one bangs one's knee, proving itself to be more than a dream. It's the physical structure that differs from mathematics in ways that cannot be revealed or even comprehended. It's the virtual god that may appear one day without reason to redeem the actual dead. It's the formerly excluded multiple erupting to shake up the boring state of the situation. It's the traumatic real kernel leaving us wounded and in search of the spear that smote us. None of these are sufficient models of the real, not only because they grant no plurality to the real, but because they are still too commensurate with our knowledge of them, even when they come from the outside. Let's imagine that we were able to gain exhaustive knowledge of all properties of a tree. It should go without saying that this knowledge would not itself be a tree. Our knowledge would not grow roots or bear fruit or shed leaves, at least not in a literal sense. Even in the case of God, exhaustive knowledge of a tree and creation of a tree would have to be two separate acts. Now, it has sometimes been objected to this point that it is a straw man. What else? After all, who confuses their knowledge of a tree with an actual tree? The answer, of course, is that no one could openly identify a thing with knowledge and still keep a straight face. And so nobody says it. The point is not that people defend this view openly, which they do not, but rather that their other views entail it, leading to a proof by reductio ad absurdum. If you hold that there is an isomorphic relationship between knowledge and reality, such that reality can be mathematized, then it also follows that a perfect mathematical model of a thing should be able to step into the world and do the labor of that thing. But this is absurd. Every model we form of a thing is an oversimplification, a translation, to use Latour's term. If even the exhaustive godlike knowledge of a tree does not add up to a real tree, then this is all the more evident for our lesser everyday sorts of knowledge. The real object is invariably withdrawn from all access. It is unified, and hence we cannot even say that it is known with 78% or 83% accuracy, since we cannot even have partial knowledge of a thing that is one. In the strict sense, an object has no parts. But just as our encounter with objects can only be a kind of translation, the same holds of the relations of objects among each other, cutting, breaking, burning, and melting each other, according to the same rules by which humans, scientists, mystics, carpenters, and clowns turn objects into caricatures. In short, materialism must collapse into object-oriented philosophy, and this holds for both families of materialism. Although object-oriented ontology, or OOO, remains a minority camp even within speculative realism, let alone continental philosophy or philosophy plain and simple, there is no good alternative to its model of a real world deeper than all access, broken in advance into individuals, each withdrawing from the other no less than they would withdraw from us, accessible through allusion rather than direct contact, and perhaps with a good deal of the poetry to which some concede no cognitive value at all. It is a philosophy in which to be does not mean to be a real pattern, but to be a unicorn roaming across bridges and lunar craters, unable to make contact with anything else that exists. The slogan that we cannot think an unthought X without turning it into something thought still has tremendous prestige in our circles and is vehemently defended by many of our best thinkers, both young and old. It is by no means a ridiculous point. 
And Meosu's radical dedication to the human world correlate is admirable enough that a summer spent in considering it will be time well spent, in my opinion. And yet I must oppose it, not least because I find it historically troubling. In asserting that what is thought is thereby converted entirely into thoughts, and that what lies outside thoughts must always remain unthinkable, the correlationist opposes the very etymology of philosophia as that which both has and does not have wisdom, and therefore loves it. In short, the correlationist embraces Mino's paradox. Whatever we have, we already have, and we, whatever we don't have, we can never obtain. At the risk of sounding pious and saccharine, in the debate between Mino and Socrates, I choose Socrates. Philosophy remains the love of wisdom, the love of a wisdom that is never obtainable. It is neither a wisdom about thoughts nor a wisdom about nature. And although it is no longer controversial to say that philosophy should not be the handmaid of theology, we should also beware lest it become the handmaid of physics, mathematics, sociology, or politics. Philosophy is the handmaid of nothing, for it is not wisdom and must not serve anything that claims to be. And furthermore, I am also of the opinion that materialism must be destroyed. That's the difference between them and the other people that I've called ground for materialists, because they're not reductionists. They don't think anything's... Things aren't made out of parts, and so you can't reduce them out of the real parts. That's right. So the ground for materialists, the kind of reduction that's there, we we could talk about two different kinds. Yes, I'll concede that. Um, um, Secondly, um, surely... uh, Well, the, the positions that you're identifying with materialism seem to be... Um, precisely uh, those that identify realism and verifications as far as you were. So, well, I just didn't catch that. Sorry. The, the positions that you're identifying with materialism yes. seem to be um, picked out by uh, certain epistemological characteristics rather than any specific metaphysical characteristics. That specifically do with their, their, their conception of the relation between science and the real. Um, and it, it, it strikes me that actually um, a better way of identifying materialism would be to talk about particular metaphysical characteristics. Which one? I.e., um, manifestation as substratum. Like being, you know, it seems that what, what identifies materialism properly, you know, leaving Zizek and Vidu and whatnot aside, mm-hmm. is, is that things are composed of matter. Regardless of, of, of what we conceive that matter to be, we don't have to identify it as, as atoms or whatever, okay. but the, the important point is that we think things have a substratum, okay. right? And, yeah. and it seems that that can be posed independently of any particular epistemological consideration with regard to relation between science and the real. Substratum or superstratum, because I'm also calling the other side materialists, the ones like Mansu, who's obviously not a materialist in the other sense. He calls himself a speculative materialist nonetheless, because it's, it's a reduction upward, it's a final level upward rather than downwards. Well, I, I, I would just say it, it, 
seems like it's just not materialism. <laughs> if you're not yeah. interested in some stratum in the kind of Aristotelian sense. That was my usual sense of the term. I always wondered why he called himself a materialist. And, and in, as, while writing this paper for the first time, I thought, actually, he is. If you, if you look at materialism in this other way. Um, but yes, you, I think you could still make the case that it's a strange choice of term for him, or even for Zizek, when he says materialism means that the world does not exist. Does this mean that there could be a, a proper metaphysical materialism dependent on this notion of substratum, which is entirely independent of these epistemological problems evinced by the two forms of materialism you're talking about? I'm still not convinced that I was doing it epistemologically, but I would say yes to your question. Because, for example, in their case, they don't think there's a final layer of real pattern, but they still think structure is the final layer. Structure is deeper than sensory qualia, for example. And so, yeah, they do th- in a way, they do think there's a substratum. They just don't think it's a final layer of tiny particles. So it is more sophisticated than the old sorts of materialism, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just trying to say, could there be forms of materialism, metaphysical materialism, which existed outside of the, the opposition you, you put forward? I don't see how, because I still don't think my, my criterion was epistemological. Well, it, it seems like you, in both cases, the, the, the problems which emerge are problems to do with the relation between our knowledge of things and things, which seem to be problems to do with the epistemological basis of the two different positions, rather than anything specific about what they say of the, the structure of reality is. All right. It seems to be, it's, it's the epistemological conditions under which they develop their metaphysics, which ultimately cause the metaphysics to fall over, but not, nothing about what I would claim to be the central metaphysical thesis of materialism, which is things are manifested in some kind of stuff. Right. I'm, tr- I'm trying to wonder if that's just an accident of the people I happen to choose. Can we, th- can we think it, of any... Ma- it could be, it could be. Are there any materialisms where the opposition has nothing to do at all with knowledge and reality? I'm sure there are, I just can't, I'm not thinking... I, I, I mean, my, my candidate is Deleuze. I'd say Deleuze oh, is a classic example. Of, I see what you're getting at. Uh, I see what you... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Deleuze oh, that's possible, yeah. Everything exists as in, in some form of substratum, but it's got nothing to do with some... That's actually an excellent point. Now that I see who you were aiming at, yeah, I could see that. I could see him being called a materialist, but not fitting into this frame. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Peter, your question. Um, yeah. I, thanks very much, Graham. I think I always have to ask you. Uh, same. If not the same question, at least this uh, question at least twice before I can follow your answer. So I think I've asked you this already, but it's provoked by. Um, by example of the derivatives market, not six billion years ago, but right now, mm-hmm. or, or into towards the future as they are. Like what? So, what would a non-relational account of a share? You know, what would it be? Like, what, how would it be adequate to whatever the quality is, or whatever the the essence or the backing pack uh, quality is that that would define a share? Now, and that already is kind of hard. So, what I want then I'm going to think about just a commodity more generally. So, you mentioned Marx at the beginning. Um, <coughs> And the way, so I'm curious about how you how you go at that. So take take an ordinary commodity. So the bottle of water that's there, you know, it's a, it has a use value, but it's basically a, a vehicle for the exchange value that uh, that it can actualize at a certain uh, place and you know in a, in a certain context. And and that's driven by various strategies for maximizing surplus value, right? It's all about surplus value and, and valorizing surplus value. Mm-hmm. But surplus value is not really an object, or it's not clear that it's an object. It doesn't appear, at least, or at least that's what Marx says. You have to, you, in order for you to get at what capitalism is doing, you have to come up with this analysis that, according to him at least, proceeds at the level beneath appearance, right? And that's what the political economists have not understood. 
So I, my question is, I get the first question is, in what sense is a share, can we have a non-relational kind of a share? And in the second case, in what sense can we talk about something like surface value as an object? On the second one, I'm, gonna, I'm really just not sure how to talk about something like surface, surplus value as an object. Um, I refuse to say, actually. <laughs> now, um, as for the first question, I don't think a non-relational concept of a share is any harder than a non-relational concept of a panda. Um, in, the, in the first case, there's a much more complicated infrastructure of other objects building it up. But remember, for me, there's a complete asymmetry between that, that kind of relationality and the kind of relationality that, that is what the context represents. The object is a kind of firewall between those two kinds of relations. So in other words, um, you know, I can't lose all my body parts and still be me, I would say. But I can, I can certainly be moved to Edinburgh or to Cairo and still be me. If you, the, the reason I say this is simply, I guess, to a kind of reductio proof, that if you don't say that, this means that every change is equally effective in changing who I am to the core, right? That a complete collapse in the banking system would affect the share just as much and just as little as my moving this bottle, because my moving this bottle is also part of the context of the market, but obviously not one that affects the share, unless you want to go radically relationist and do what Whitehead or Latour do in my reading and say that the entire world, everything relationally affects everything else. So if you're not going to commit to that, then you're going to have to say there's some distinction between contextual changes that make a difference and those that don't. And the, sh the share in itself would just be whatever you get when you subtract all the context in which it is or might be. Same for the panda. Now, also, uh, in terms of the thing's components, I would also say that a thing is not entirely dependent on its components because you, a thing can also survive some changes within its own components. I mean, my, your cells are changing all the time. I wouldn't say this changes who you are. Um, so there's also some protection downward from a thing being able to withstand certain changes in its, in its, down, in its relation, interior relations. Whereas upward, I would say there's a total subtractability from that. I mean, obviously, yes, if you took me away from oxygen, I would die. But uh, then it would be I who am dying, right? It's, there is an I that dies. And it's not the I in this room that dies. It's the I in the, in the oxygenless world that dies. So there's, you're conceding that there's an I outside the oxygen, if you say that. You, look, you still look perplexed. And I know we've been going at this for about three years since the first speculative realism <laughs> talk. Right, let, me, let me ask if there's a change in... Well, because I think the work of relation does that. Relation relates terms. It doesn't relate bundles. Of, you know, it relates... So in the case of share, you have a buyer and a seller. There's a transaction. There's a relation. And there's okay. something that's being sold. You know, you know, the idea that you insist on the, the fact that a share or a unit of currency or a commodity doesn't mean anything outside of the relation of buying and selling, for example. It doesn't mean that buying and selling uh, doesn't deal with objects, doesn't deal with things that are being bought and sold, or, or things that are abstract, like labor power or or um, you know, forms of value. My, I guess my question is, you know, in someone like Marx, there's a big difference between, say, water that you drink because you're thirsty and that has a use, and then you could talk about it, I imagine, in your terms, quite comfortably as a kind of object, and thinking about water as a commodity, for example. And, that, and my, so my question is, are there some kinds of objects, for example, commodities, I think there'd be others, mm -hmm. where it would be very difficult, if you were to really abstract the relations, not just the ones that you think of as trivial, like moving things on your desk, but the actual relation to determine the commodity in its value, for example, if you abstract that, you're not left with anything. It's not like there's a residual thing like the actual water, the use value, 
that would remain. There would be nothing. And that's what capitalism works like this. Okay, but then that would follow from that that every tiny change in the market changes it into a different commodity. And would you really want to go that far? Would you want to say that every time the price of this fluctuates by a tenth of a cent on the market, it's, it's automatically a different commodity? Because that's how you'd be, you'd be committed, that absolute form of relationism. That I agree with you that, that water is a commodity, it can be an object. It sounds, I thought you were going to say no at first, but now it sounds like you are saying that water as a commodity is an object, but it's an object that's constituted by, rela- constituted by relations. Is that... All commodities are constituted by relations. In, in a way that water, a qua physical object, is not. Right, well, there are different kinds of relations. So, yeah, you can imagine, that as a commodity, mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine contexts in which water would not be a commodity at all, easily. In fact, that was the case until started printing bottles and selling it, or, or doing the equivalent, you know, municipal level or whatever. Right. But in many places, it's not a commodity. And for Marx, there are many, many things that are not commodities, but capitalism tendentially turns everything into a commodity, including material experiences, etc. Right. I'm, I'm actually not hearing that much of a difference between us on this question. Maybe I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is, because for me, water as a physical object is meteorologically composed, composed of molecules and so on. And I say water as a commodity the same thing, and that might emerge historically at a certain point I don't see water as a commodity as being defined by relations in the relationist metaphysics sense that it's completely defined by its current effects on everything in its environment now because even the water as a commodity is robust enough that it can withstand certain fluctuations in its exact status as a commodity, right? You, unless you want to go so far as to say that water is a different commodity every time you know, I move the papers and now water is a different commodity and I, if hair falls off my head, water is now a different commodity. Unless you want to go that far, it does have some robustness I would see its its composition out of the consumers and capital and all these things as being no different from the composition through molecules in the case of the physical water. Well, it's yeah. robust in relation to the, the relations that affect it as a commodity. So the, you're moving your hair around doesn't affect it. Oh, I, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree that some changes can destroy it as a commodity. Yeah, sure. And this is sounding like a variation of the old chess piece yeah. dispute that I never actually answered, I must admit. Yeah. Sorry. I'm starting I'm to. Point of information question. Mm-hmm. Go for it, Boston. Um, uh, it's very, very quick. Uh, if you had a certain set of relations, um, let's say 112, and then that changed to 110, that would be very different than it changing from 112 relations to uh, 10, right? Now, now, you seem to be saying that, for example, in, in the case of a commodity, that every change is equivalent. But in terms of relations, you can draw distinctions, for example, in terms of number or intensity, uh, which doesn't make every change the same. Uh, am I just completely misunderstanding the point you're making back against Peter I agree with what you just said. I'm, I'm trying to struggle to see whether that works against my, my response to Peter. Yes, of course. Yeah, not, every rela- not every relation changes the thing equally. And I would say that's precisely because some of them are compositionally a part of that thing in a way that the external relations are not. And, of course, it's not just a question of number. As you say, it's also a question of intensity. So if you know what's the average, we all supposedly know between four and 600 people, is that it? Some sociologists have studied this. It's a finite number. And, of course, you know the death of two of those can be devastating in a way that the death of 100 might not be, depending on who they are. Um, my point to Peter was just that you can't say that a th- the fact that a thing is composed of relations does not mean that it's, it's dependent on its relations. Those are two different kinds of relations. Composition and, and context are two different kinds of relations for me. I think people, even, even Leiderman and Ross missed that point, I think, when they talk about how you can't move the, the 
market to Saturn because in the case of the panda, they're only performing one operation, right? They're taking the panda out of its context, but they're keeping its compositional pieces. In the case of the market, they're removing both. So, of course, the examples turn out different. But a share as a share or a commodity as a commodity outside of the relation of the market, for example, what would it be? But then I would say in that case, the market is the is the analog of the panda's body. It's you know, the, the market is itself what constitutes the the share. But you can still you can still move that share into slightly different contexts within the market, and it's still the same share, right? You can sell the you can sell that share to another country that's under different laws, and so it's functioning different slightly in that new context. And you, you wouldn't call it a different share, would you? Just because there might be legal barriers to its manipulation in Egypt that they're on the United States or something like this, it would still be the same share, I think. It's just that it's working in a new context now. Right. Okay, if I, if I move things on a bit, because um, we've got a few questions okay. backed up now. Um, Reed, you were next. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate the um, discontent you, you have for both this kind of ground floor and first floor mm -hmm. sense of materialism. But, but I'm kind of... Um, <coughs> I'm wondering if there's like another another sense of materialism that's being missed in this account, and I'm not going the same direction Pete was going, um, uh, because like coming coming from Marx, um, certainly there's a tradition that you you criticize here, like this kind of dialectical materialism, which I, I would also yeah I think that's those are right criticisms, um, but I mean the, Marxism is certainly a tradition that's done more damage to its uh, founder than pretty much any any as much as any at least. Um, and I don't think you see that kind of crude, um, that kind of crude ontology uh, in Marx himself. Um, uh, I think m materialism Marx functions in a much different way. It's not kind of a metaphysical doctrine, doctrine or an epistemological doctrine. It's a kind of metaphysical, uh, metaphilosophical doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, the point of materialism is is that philosophical philosophical discourse. Um, must have an eye towards the material conditions that allow it to exist. This isn't to say that ontology, the content of, of, of you know, what, what we're doing as philosophers, is subordinate to political conditions or anything like that. It's just saying, um, as philosophers participating in this practice, there's a certain set of conditions that allow us to do this. And we're either complicit in maintaining those conditions or we're involved, or we're involved in changing them or we're indifferent. Mm -hmm. really amounts to complicity. So the question is really more of whether or not we're active as a, as a discipline or as a practice in changing those conditions. There are other conditions that can allow the same sort of thing to go on. Um, so I'd, I'd, I wonder like, what, what your opinion on that sense. It's not really a metaphysical doctrine at all. Does this yeah. have any bearing on your... Right, that opinion? would be exempt from this critique, because okay. this critique was only trying to deal with that other kind. Yeah, I have no objection to that kind of materialism. Okay. Um, yeah, I just, I, I mean, certainly there's a certain kind of ontology that's derived from Marx in this regard. I don't know if that's legitimate or not. Um, sure, sure. Okay. I was, sorry, I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. To just, yeah. Okay, um, it's um, going to take, it would be Nathan, and then uh, Adrian, then Alex, and then uh, Charlie. Charlie, okay. Uh, so, so, Nathan. Yeah, uh, sorry to bang on about the same point, but I'm going to uh, get out again. You, you seem to have like an aversion to mathematics, um, which is why you have to use uh, you know, normal language, let's say, uh, a metaphor and various mm -hmm. other uh, linguistic devices to, to get get you where you want to go in your, your philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and just reading that through your kind of criticism of Ladyman and Ross, and it seems to be that um, 
where, where things become difficult for them is between mathematics and the real. They want to keep this uh, uh, this real, but at the same time they want to mathematize everything. Yep. And they, they never seem to, to know what, well, what's going on here. Mm -hmm. um, but in a sense, you, you've got a problem of um, how you conceive mathematics here, because they seem to see it as a kind of a model of the reality. So in some sense, it would be a constructivist no, notion of mathematics. Uh, whereas, I mean, there are alternatives that, that potentially could resolve this. Um, not Platonism, uh, obviously, because you know you're you're stuck in a kind of direct equation of thought and thought and being. But um, I mean, why not, for instance, uh, Pythagoreanism? Just simply that reality is mathematical. Um, you said at one point that you know mathematics can't make brown leaves. You know mm -hmm. the, the leaves on a tree are brown, but um, I mean, why not? If, if fundamentally you say what is is mathematics. That is the, the most ontologically fundamental thing for reality. Yeah. He has actually asked that question in his interview in Collapse 5, which I would recommend to everybody. It's a very a good, tough interview. Um, why don't you just become a Neoplatonist, Neopythagorean? And all he really says is, it's a good point, and uh, I would admit that this is the strongest challenge to ontic structural realism, more than traditional realism. So he seems to see that he verges very closely on that. I wouldn't say that they say mathematics is a model because it's more for them than that. It's they actually think it does have contact directly with the real. This is why they this is why they don't feel. I mean, the whole reason for structural realism being born is that traditional realism can't account for theory change. It, you know, it used to believe in phlogiston and now that doesn't exist. So where's the realism in science if it believes in these spooks that disappear? Uh, and, and their reasoning is that not, it, since some mathematical structure is preserved from one theory to the next, it's, it also seems to be um, either isomorphic with or identical to reality in some way. They never clarify which of those it is. He says it could be isomorphic or homomorphic. I don't even know the difference between those two. But various various sorts of relations mathematical could have with the real. It has to be something more than a model. I, when I said here that mathematical models were translations, that was m me speaking, not me summarizing, not my summarizing what they were saying. Yeah. Uh -huh. but, uh, so, sorry, but, but how how would you how would you respond to a Pythagorean, for instance? Oh, how would I respond? I've never been presented with that challenge, so I've never had to sharpen my axe. That'd be amazing if this Pythagorean stands up in the audience. I'm an aspiring one, but And there is a guy, there's a guy named in the Collapse interview, whose name I forget, who is a Pythagorean in that sense. Um, I'm not sure I have an immediate good answer. If somebody was going to go that far and say, actually, the, the mathematization of the leaf is the leaf, I'll think that over. Okay. Um, Adrian? Thanks. Um, first, a quick point of clarification and then a question. Now, in every instance that I can recall, when Zizek proclaims that uh, the world does not exist, mm -hmm. uh, as far as I know, he means it in the sense not that he's denying the existence of external, mind-independent, objective reality, but rather the word world is functioning as synonymous for some sort of cosmic one-all as an integrated totality that is uh, you know, seamlessly uh, uh, at one with itself or unified by uh, a kind of you know, consistent web or fabric mm -hmm. or network of relations. So I think that you know, in that sense, perhaps he's not quite as uh, you know, far from perhaps some of what you're interested in espousing. Um, because most places where he uses the word world is usually as a synonym for this idea of a cosmic whole, a kind of global, fully, internally consistent totality, which he seems to deny on the basis of what he considers to be a defensible materialism. 
I was just going to say, I don't want to argue Zizek with Adrian Johnston, of all people, but, <laughs> but uh, the passage I have in mind is on page 97 of the Conversations with Glenn Daly. And uh, there it seems to me that he's not talking about that one all. He's talking about um, Kantian Numenon and saying that there's not, basically there's nothing outside. It sounds, it sounds like a Fichteanism there. Uh, yeah, this issue in terms of the relationship between phenomena and Numenon, I'm glad you mentioned this because yeah. it serves as a helpful lead-in to uh, what my, my actual question is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, it, I don't have all of Zizek memorized, so I, you know, it would be very good for me to go back and take a look at uh, that page in Conversations with Zizek. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the phenomena and Numenon, you know, this, of course, seems to me to be one of the things that uh, draws the most criticism in terms of the position you stake out, especially you know, at the level of the distinction between real and sensual objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I want to lead into this question with, uh, it's an example which I actually used in the, in the Zizek's ontology book of uh, two different ways to read what Freud refers to as the navel of a dream in the interpretation of dreams. Uh, and one way, which is the more common one, which I think is actually wrong, you know, is the idea that there is something there uh, in the manifest fabric of, of the dream text that can be dealt with interpretively that is, uh, that, you know, recedes, withdraws, okay. that, you know, is very much, you know, uh, one of these interpretations tend to describe the uh, navel along the lines in which it sounds like you describe, or, you know, the sort of language you use to illustrate what you have in mind by the real object that's mm-hmm. vacuum sealed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that that interpretation is wrong because what Freud indicates is that what makes uh, the uh, navel of the dream appear as a blank, as a sort of point of opacity in the interpretations that can be constructed by the analyst is not that it's something which receives, which, which uh, 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 you know, basically uh, turns in upon itself and hence uh, you know, moves beyond the interpretive grasp of the analyst as based upon there being connections or relations that can be interpreted, mm-hmm. but rather that the problem is there are so many connections between the navel and all the other parts of the dream text that it overloads the analyst's interpretive capacity by presenting an excess rather than a deficit of relations to be dealt with. And one thing I've wondered with your work is, you know, why not uh, take uh, that approach and say, well, the reason why you would want to talk about you know, an object that can't be exhausted by uh, you know, a particular set of interactions or a set of relations would be that at least potentially there's an inexhaustible number of relations it can enter into and that at any moment of its actualization in terms of a network of relations, that's never going to present you know, all of what could be the case in terms of what could happen to that object, what that object could do, what sort of connections that object could have with others, so that you have a sense of the real object, but not as a withdrawn numinum, but rather just as something which has such an excessive superabundance of possible relations, and then you don't have to appeal to this idea of this withdrawn vacuum pack X, you know, that generates all these problems that, of course, for Zizek, one reason we can't go back to the Kantian numinum phenomenon distinction is that he does think that all of the criticisms that Kant's contemporaries and immediate successors level against that create just uh, insurmountable problems for the Kantian version of that distinction, which I won't recapitulate, but it, of course, motivates what he's saying on page 97 that you're uh, quoting from as well. Okay, I, I, I guess the reason I would not go in that direction is because what is it that holds together all these possibilities? I know mean, people often think, oh, that, that's such a naive classical thing to say. There has to be something holding together, bundling together these things. But even if you were to add up all the possible relations to a thing, that's not going to give you the thing because, first of all, there has to be something holding those together. Also, all the possible relations there are to me are different from all the possible relations there are to you, which implies that there's something there beyond those relations that's, that's there. And if it's not something fully expressed in my current surroundings now, if there's something to me that's not currently manifesting itself, un- unexpressed property, unexpressed reality, 
it has to be something like a numinal. Um, all that I don't like about a numinal is, first of all, the idea that you can't say anything about it. I think you can. You can elusively say things indirectly about it. Also, the fact that parts of the numinal for Kant are never, you can never prove that they act against each other. It could, be, could just be a lump, or it could be many things. He's not sure. Um, what, I was going to say some. You want to? What I was going to say is, you started to talk about. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You go first. You go first. What I was going to say. I don't know if this is directly relevant to your point, but oftentimes people will try to claim that there's already a sufficient sense of the real in thinkers where I don't think there's a sufficient sense of the real. And the way they do it is always by saying, well, of course I know there's some residue that's not thematized. An example would be this recent tendency in phenomenology to say, well, phenomenologists aren't idealists because the, the world is given to us. You know, it's passive. We don't. We're not constituting it. Still doesn't matter because it's first of all it's still a question of human and world. It's still a correlate. And second of all, what about parts of the world interacting with each other? Why is it always a matter of this one relation between human and worlds? So it's not realist enough for me when Marion says things are given. That's not realism. It's the phenomenology is an idealism, unfortunately. And with Zizek, I never get any sense. I mean, there's no, what's a Zizekian physics? What would that be like? Um, so, because how could parts of the real traumatic kernel interact with each other without humans having any access to it in Zizek. I don't see any way for that to work. Well, I mean, well, there's a, this could be related to Peter's question. I won't go into okay. it. Okay. There are other people waiting to ask. You know, but when he starts talking about Lacan's register theory in relation to, you know, 12, things like capital or what have you, yeah. uh, and here you have the idea in the Marxist tradition of, I think, many things that you actually see in terms of uh, what I think could be recognized as object-oriented in terms of the autonomous, you know, relations between entities that are not mediated directly by humans or by consciousness or by phenomenal access, yeah. you know, that I think is very, would be interesting to look at, but I should shut up so that you can oh, Okay, so we, we're going to test, uh, take two more questions, and we might go slightly over time, but, but not by more than about five minutes or so. So it's uh, Alex first. Um, this kind of relates to, to Peter's point uh, a minute ago. Um, it, it seems, so the idea about the water was that there's this extra thing added um, to the water, when it becomes a commodity, right? Uh, and, and so when it when it's extracted from the spring and, and bottled and given a price and someone buys it, there is something more added to it. So there is some kind of like causality between different <coughs> objects um, that, that cause that change. At which point, at what point does one object become another object? At what point do you individuate these particular objects? For example. If we say a tree is coming into flower, at every second that tree is existing, do we have a different, separate, discrete object? Or do we have the tree as a whole just moving in a kind of becoming fashion? But how would we relate that ecologically to, for example, the grass that the tree surrounds that also depends? Essentially, I'm asking you the question of individuation. How do we individuate an object and relate to that? Is, is like there are obviously objects, particularly in speculative physics, in the physics of a thousand years from now, that we don't have any idea that even exists. Right. So it's a question one of individuation, and two like future objects. Uh -huh. Like, does that not depend on human perception to say there is this object? Let's call it blah, which was like you know year three thousand's main concept of physics. Mm -hmm. You know, dark matter was being. Yeah, the, um, so the first part of your question, all these questions about when the tree becomes a different tree based on flowering and growing, I mean, these are the sorts of things that, 
they're always debating a Mariology and, and analytic metaphysics, and there are different schools about this. My own, my own feeling about it is that uh, a thing becomes a different thing, not just when it's perceived differently, but when it has actual new real qualities. Not, and also, so in other words, not being measured by its effects. Not that a tree is real because it has different. Not that a tree has changed because it has different effects on other things, because that sounds too much like um, the early Latour's theory that a thing is no is is only its effects. Uh, because if you do that, then there's nothing left of the thing once you subtract its effects. There has to be something there over and above the, fa- the effects, and the same tree has to be able to have different effects depending on who's in the vicinity. I think there's, there's both a, a metaphysical and an epistemological question here. The metaphysical question is how do you define what a sufficient number of changes is to make the thing different? The other question would be epistemological, which, or methodological, rather. How do, we, how do we go around looking for these cases? How, how do we recognize such a case when we see it? And it seems to me that this is what all forms of human knowledge do. It seems to me that all forms of human knowledge look, go hunting for objects. They go hunting for what are, what are the real things in this situation that make a difference and not just surface variations. Um, the example that's been on my mind for the last year or so is the McCain-Victory Coalition. What is the status of the McCain-Victory Coalition? It obviously never came into play. Did it, did it exist in some sense even though it never was used? And my guess is that probably it did in some sense exist um, it was there. It just wasn't capitalized on. Um, so that's that's a long-winded way of saying that these are difficult problems. That I'm not. But I, I think you can't just define a thing's individuality by the effects it has on the outside, because any any individual thing can have multiple effects uh, on the outside world. So there has to be some internal principle. Uh, is a tree. I would say yes, because that's just a an exaggerated version of asking if it's the same thing at seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night. But uh, then you get into questions like, uh, is the tree the same tree if you chop off all of its branches and it's just there as a tall stump? And I, I don't, I don't have good answers for all those questions. I'm afraid. Yeah. I refuse to say. <laughs> That's going to be my standard response to any question. I <laughs> Great. I refuse to answer. Okay, um, so final question, Charlie? Yeah, it's slightly related to that. Um, in the paradox bishop of Theseus, oh, yeah. which would be the same object, yeah. which would be the tool being carried. Yeah, I guess my position commits me to the notion that it is the same ship if you're just replacing the wood. So the first one. Yeah, I thought about this too, and I don't have an especially clever answer to it, but I'm inclined to think that it's the... Because what essentially my position is a lot like the theory of substantial forms. It's There is a scholastic or Leibnizian flavor to my position, that the form is what matters. The material is fairly irrelevant. Um, obviously there's another sense in which the ship isn't the same ship because it's lo- it loses value in the museum markets if it's not the same wood as before. Um, I remember being really excited the first time I went to Florence, going into Dante's house, and then somebody later told me it was built in the 1800s as a reconstruction of the long-gone house. It was devastating to hear that, because I, I really thought I was in Dante's house, naively. Um, so we could talk about that all day, but my short answer is I think I think it's still the ship of Theseus if the wood is replaced. Yeah. Right, the, the tricky variant of the question, of course, is what if somebody then takes all the old wood and reassembles it in a different place? Right. That's the production of my So all the boards get removed, refilled somewhere else. Well, every time a board gets taken off, it gets replaced by another one. Yeah, the, the mo- get somewhere else. 
So you've got two ships, and one had the original form, but different wood. The other had different wood, but original form. Original wood, but different form. The most clever and convincing answer I've heard to this is that the original Theseus ship has two aspects that in this paradox are then split. So that it was one ship and it actually becomes two and both can be called real in a sense. The ship was both physically identical and instrumentally identical or whatever you want to call it. And then somehow just through that experiment, they split the two asunder. And so there's no longer any one ship that has both senses of originality. And that's a, that sounds as good as any solution I've heard to the paradox. But yeah, it'd be a fun thing to do. Try to come up with a, an original response to the ship of Theseus question. You should try that sometime. Okay, I think um, that's a good place to finish it. Pretty much bang on time. Yeah. So. Okay, it only uh, remains for me to say that uh, we begin tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. We will not be in the same room. We're, I'll put up new signs tomorrow so you can follow the signs as well. But we're in the room below this one. So instead of coming up the two flights of stairs, you come up one flight of stairs and you go into um, the suite there. It's called the Baxter Suite. It'd be fully signposted, but we're not in the same room tomorrow. And also, please remember, the clocks do go forward tonight. Oh, yeah. So it says 10 o'clock here, but that's 9 o'clock, if you think about it, if you put your, your, your clocks forward. Does the room look the same? Does it look like the same design? No, it's a great room. It's, a, it's like a big 70s room with big kind of high ceiling and ceilings. We face into the corner. Yeah. I like going right before dinner. You can just go off and enjoy yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's really, really great. Yeah, it's great.